This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, as I mentioned, today is a special day. Because today, we as a church family, we are going to make a commitment. Surprise! We don't like commitments, do we? Today, we're going to make a commitment. Today is child dedications. And today, at the close of our sermon, five families, they're going to come forward. And they're going to stand before you, stand before us, their church family, and I'm going to read to them a passage from Deuteronomy 6 about their responsibility as parents, and they're going to make a commitment to help their newborn children know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, right? Pointing them to Jesus by loving like Jesus, knowing that no one will have a greater impact on their child's faith or their walk with Christ than they will. But there's also a second part to child dedications. Is once we're done with that part to the parents, I turn to you, the congregation. Because, see, while parents are primary in their children's spiritual growth and in their discipleship, we have a role to play in that, don't we? In partnering with parents, helping the parents help their children know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. And so I'm going to read to you, I'm going to read a passage from Hebrews 10. As we, their church family, we make a commitment before God and and to these parents to love and care for and minister to these families that are going to stand before us. And that commitment that we are making to those families, it is a reminder of who we are, that we are a family who follows Jesus together. That's the title of our sermon this morning, a family who follows Jesus together. Of all the metaphors that Scripture uses uh, to describe us, this gathering, the the ecclesia, the church, right? We've got the the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Uh, My favorite of them all is is family. It's my favorite because of how it captures both our identity, right, who it is that we are, both individually and collectively, as well as our responsibility to each other, what it is that we are going to be committing to this morning. It reveals this communal, collective aspect to following Jesus, right? That this isn't an individual sport, is it? No, it's a, it's a team effort. We, we need each other in this. And so if you're taking notes, our, our big idea this morning is this. Why don't you write this down? It's that following Jesus isn't something we do alone. It's something we do together. Following Jesus, it's not something we do alone. It is something we do together. And so before we make this commitment this morning, we're going to turn to this passage in Hebrews 10. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the New Testament uh, book of Hebrews, the passage that I'm going to read later to the congregation, to you. And in this passage this morning, we're going to see the author give us two important reminders, reminders that are going to help us understand our identity as a church family, right? who we are and what it is that unites us together, and a reminder of our responsibility to our church family what it is that we are committing to. And then we're going to close our time in God's word by putting this passage into practice with child dedications. And so the first reminder that we're going to see this morning is of our identity as a church family. We're going to see who it is that we are and what it is that unites us together. And so let's go ahead and take out your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 21 read. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, Hebrews, uh, for those that may not be familiar, the book of Hebrews is, is more like a sermon 
than a letter. It's not quite like uh, Paul and Peter and James and John's and their, their epistles. It's more like a sermon, a sermon that was delivered to the Hebrews, to the first century Jewish Christians. And the preacher here in, in the opening of this passage, he, he uses some familiar Old Testament imagery, Old Testament imagery to remind us of, of who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what it is that Jesus accomplished. And he begins by describing the holy places, the holy of holies, right? The, the innermost room of the temple in Jerusalem. It's where God's presence dwelt in this special way among his people. But the thing under, under the Old, Test, Old Covenant was that not just anybody could, could walk in and hang out with God in the holy of holies. That's not how the Old Covenant worked. Now, only one person, only the high priest the priest being these mediators between God and his people. Only the high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he was only able to enter on one day a year to stand before and in the, the midst of God's presence, he was only able to enter on the Day of Atonement, now referred to as Yom Kippur. And the priest, he would enter through a, a series of curtains, kind of like if you've gone to a corn maze already so far this fall. Think of like going through a maze of curtains. That's, and these curtains, they were symbolic in a way in that the curtains separated God's presence from his people. So he had entered through the curtains, but only after this, this special bath that he took, this ritual cleansing, if you will, and then wearing these holy linen garments that God had prescribed. And then he would take two goats, and one goat would be sacrificed to atone for the sin of the people and, and sprinkling that, that blood of the goat on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, priests in this time, they were kind of like a part-time butcher. Uh, they read God's word and they cut up a bunch of oxes and goats and sheep and it got bloody. But not just that, the other goat, the other goat was then set free, wasn't he? The other goat was the, the scapegoat, if you will, sent into the wilderness carrying away the sins of the people. And while not in Scripture, Jewish tradition tells us that this was such a significant and, and even risky and dangerous event to, to walk into God's holiness, that what the priests would do is they would tie a rope around their waist. And their buddies would sit back on the other side of the curtain, and they would walk in through the curtain, and, and if they gave that special tug, that signal, right, they'd yank them back out, because what if, what if in that ritual bath, what if they missed a spot? You know, still a little stinky. Uh, what if they, they didn't splatter enough blood, you know? Or what if they just died um, in the presence of God? So they had to pull them back out. And so they tied a rope around their waist for this. And that seems like a lot of work to go to, doesn't it? I mean, did any of you go to that much work to come to church today? No. I hope you took the shower part. Why is all this necessary? Why all the rigmarole? Well, it's because sinful human beings are unable to stand before and in the presence of a perfect and holy and righteous God. We sang it this morning, you are holy, a reminder of who God is, right? And our sin and God's holiness, they cannot coexist in the same time in the same place. And no matter how hard and how long you scrub, no matter how much blood you drained from that goat, that old covenant bath and that old covenant sacrifice, it would never cleanse you. It would never fully atone for your sin, but they weren't actually intended to do that, were they? Instead, they pointed forward. They pointed to a new and living way for us to be able to enter into God's presence. 
They pointed to a a greater cleansing and the ultimate sacrifice to to Jesus, our great high priest, who offered himself, the preacher says just a few verses earlier, as a once and for all sacrifice, the one through whom we have been sanctified. And Jesus, in John 14, he declared himself to be this new and living way, truth, and life, saying that nobody is able to come and stand before and in the presence of God the Father except through him, because of what he did for us. Jesus carried our sins to the cross, didn't he? And the tearing of his flesh, it tore down the curtain that separated us from God. And the spilling of his blood is what has washed us clean, and his death atoning for our sin. What the preacher says is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it should give us confidence, shouldn't it? It should give us this sense of assurance to enter into God's presence, no longer wandering as if we walk in those doors. Am I I good enough? Have I done enough to enter God's presence? Knowing full well, we're not good enough, and we've not done enough. But Jesus has, and Jesus is. You'll notice the welcome team this morning, not one of them offered you a rope to tie around your waist as you walked into the sanctuary. There's not a series of ropes leading out the door with the welcome team standing out there ready to pull you out if you give them that tug. By the way, the tug is three. That's the signal, three tugs. They'll pull you back out. We don't have to worry about that because Jesus added your name to the guest list, so to speak, didn't he? He added your name to the guest list to a really great party. Handing you a ticket to this, this extravagant party, that, a ticket that is so expensive you could never afford it on your own. A ticket so impossible for you to acquire on your own, no matter who you know, you, you could never obtain it on your own. But it's not just any ticket. A lot of times when people say, hey, you want a ticket to this thing? You know, it's, uh, it's the ticket to the nosebleed section, isn't it? Like, you don't actually have a chair back because your back is the back of the building. It's that far back. But that's not the ticket Jesus has given. It's not the nosebleed section. In fact, it's better better than a backstage pass at your favorite concert. It's better, if you can imagine this, it's better than a pit road pass at a NASCAR race. It's It's better than a field pass to be down on the field when the Bears go to the Super Bowl and Justin Fields scores that winning touchdown so you can give him a high five right afterwards. It's better than that better than all of that. No, this is an all-access pass to God's presence. And we have been invited here. We have been invited to enter into God's presence. The, The eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, we get to spend time with him not, a, not timid, not afraid, not worried if there's going to be some bouncer at the door keeping us out because our name's not on the list because we are, we are confident that Jesus has put our name on the list. But not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that he's done. Jesus, he is this bridge that spans this, this chasm that exists between you and God. He's this bridge that spans this chasm that your sin dug, this chasm your sin carved. And he's handing you this ticket to cross this bridge. And all we need to do is humbly receive that ticket. And you know what happens when you do? The Apostle John, he opens his gospel saying that those who receive Jesus, 
Those who receive this free gift of redemption, this this ticket to, to enter into God's presence through Jesus, and who believe in his name, the name of Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, which means God with us, he gave the right to those who receive him and believe in his name to become children of God. We are his chosen, adopted, beloved sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters united together in Christ. We are a family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, he says, only in Jesus Christ are we one and only through him are we bound together. It is the only thing that truly unites us together. Not our favorite pizza place, not our favorite sports team, not where we work, not where we grew up, not what church tradition we grew up in. Jesus is what unites us. And so our identity as a church family, it is found in Christ. Jesus is what unites us together, amen? That is it. And so that's why Paul can say things like that in Christ there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Not because those things like vocation and culture and gender cease to exist because those things, they will continue to exist into eternity, into the eschaton. They continue to exist. It's because our unity is not found in those things, right? Our unity is not found in uniformity. It is found in Jesus. And is there any more important reminder than that in a day and age where we have no shortage of things to be divided on, to be divisive about? Our unity is found in Christ. The second reminder that we see here is of our responsibility to our church family. A reminder of what it is that we are committing to, of why it is that we gather and what it is that we do to gather. And here in these last verses, he he reminds us of three collective responsibilities that we actually have to each other. And what you're going to notice is that each one of these begins with the phrase, let us. Not let me. Not let you singular, let us together. It is plural, not singular. These are things done together, not alone. And the first reminder of our responsibility to each other that he gives us is this. It's that we gather together as a church family to worship in God's presence. We gather to worship in God's presence. Let's look here at verse 22. He says, let us, let us draw near, drawing near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, if you got this ticket and you got access to God whenever you want, wouldn't you take him up on that whenever you could? Right, we got access to God's presence. So God, he's calling us. He's calling us to draw near to his presence. And so we enter into his presence and we enter into this place, this time together to worship. And he describes here how we worship. He says, we worship with a true heart, hearts transformed by Jesus. In full assurance of faith, right? Entering with that confidence that God desires our presence among his, that we belong here, that this is home. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil and guilty conscience, freed from the guilt of our sin. And bodies washed with pure water, this symbolic washing of baptism. 
And while we get to celebrate child dedications today, we're going to celebrate baptisms tomorrow, so we got another great week coming up then. We gather together in God's presence to worship God because that is what we were made for. That is at the top of our job description, to worship and bring glory to God. John Stott, an Anglican pastor, he says, worship is the church's preeminent duty. It's at the top of our list. We were created by God to worship God and to worship God alone because God alone is worthy of our worship, isn't he? But I think if we were to look at our lives over the course of the next day, the next week, the next month, we'll find that we offer our worship to many things, don't we? We offer up to other things, to other people, what is reserved for God and for God alone. Because God alone is worthy of our worship. And worship, if you think about it, it is simply an active response to who God is, what God has done, and what he has promised to do. Worship is a verb, isn't it? It is something we do. Worship, it's not a noun, right? It's not something we consume. And so when we worship, when we actively worship, and we actively respond to God, we worship with our entire being, don't we? We worship with our voices. We sing. But I think sometimes we limit the idea of worship only to songs. We worship with our bodies as we stand and as we raise our hand, a physical expression of our worship. We worship with our minds, focusing our attention on God. We we worship with our ears as we hear God's word read and his word preached. We worship God with our hearts as the spirit stirs. We worship with our mouths as we partake in communion. We worship with our eyes as we see one another when we gather together, as we, we taste and we see that the Lord is good. And gathering together to worship God in his presence that is a responsibility that we have to one another because of what it does. It strengthens our faith in God. It strengthens our fellowship with one another. You'll notice this. If, if you've been away for a period of time, an extended period of time from, from, from worship, from small group, pretty soon, you know what the phrase we start to hear? I just, I just don't know if I feel connected anymore. Well, you don't feel connected anymore because you've not been here. You've not been with others. It strengthens our fellowship. But not only that, this entire time from the opening call to worship to the closing benediction, everything that we're doing here is formative, isn't it? It is forming us more into the image of Christ. But not just us, not just in big church, but all of us, including our children, they are being formed in the midst of this because we are modeling worship for them, aren't we? We're modeling it for them. We are pursuing God's presence with them, and through it all, we are showing them how we prioritize this time, this place, and these people. And so I want to begin by asking, what does your worship model for others. And I'm not just talking to parents. I'm talking to moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandparents, friends and family, or just uh, anybody who's here as a child sees you. What does your worship model for our children? The second reminder of our responsibility to each other is this. It's that we gather together as a church family to remember God's promises. We gather to remember God's promises. Look at verse 23 here. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, life is um, 
a lot more like a roller coaster than a train, isn't it? Any roller coaster fans? Yeah? Okay. I was until I hit about 40, and then, I don't know, something happens. I'm still a fan. I still do it. It's just that it's a little wobbly afterwards. And uh, the train, though, think about the train. The train takes a relatively smooth, relatively flat, relatively straight path. You're able to walk up and down the cars on the train, have a snack, take a nap. It's nice and smooth. By the way, I'm describing Amtrak, not the CTA. Right? Ain't nothing smooth about the CTA. I don't care what color line you're on. In fact, the CTA is probably a bit more like the roller coaster, isn't it? The roller coaster, though, if you think about it, roller coaster, it's got hills and curves and twists and turns. It'll throw you upside down. It is most definitely wavering, isn't it? But that's the whole point. Who wants to go on an unwavering roller coaster? Right? It, that's the point of it. It makes it fun. And so when you get on a wavering roller coaster, you better hold fast, right? That's why the, the harness comes down to contain you. That's why you've got the handles to hold on to. And as much as we want life to be like a nice little train ride out west, life looks a lot more like a roller coaster, doesn't it? It's got twists and turns. It's got curves. It speeds up. It slows down. Sometimes it feels like it came to a screeching halt while we're upside down sometimes. And as life throws all that at us, God's promises are those handles that we hold fast to, aren't they? God's word is that harness that, that contains us through the twists and turns and the curves of life. They are reminders of God's promises and reminders of God's faithfulness. They're reminders of who God is and what God will do. And so we gather together as a church family holding fast to the confession of our hope, holding fast to the words in this book Remembering God's promises and needing this necessary reminder that he who promised is faithful. Remembering promises like that God chose to come to us, to, to liberate us, to free us from slavery to sin. That God chose to adopt us into his family as his children, that he will never leave you or forsake you. Promises that because we are in Christ, nothing, not anything can separate us from the love of God. Promises that he will never leave or forsake us. Promises that he will work all things together for good. We need these reminders, don't we? We need these reminders each and every week. We need these reminders each and every day because we are so quick to forget, aren't we? We're quick to forget. I don't care if you write it on your hand. You're going to forget it. It's going to sweat off. And so we need to be reminded again and again and again. We need to hear these promises. We need to be reminded of these promises. And so do our children, don't they? And so I want to ask, in the midst, in the twists and the turns that life has thrown at us over this last year, these last almost couple of years now, what are you holding fast to? in the midst of this. When it feels like life's tipped you upside down and come to a screeching halt, what are you holding fast to? Whose, whose promises are shaping you? Whose promises are forming you? Who are you turning to? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the promises of the world? Or are you promising in the promise, trusting in the promises of God's word? See, here's the thing. We are all being discipled by someone and formed into the image of something. All the time we are. 
The only question is, who and what? That someone that you are being discipled by is who you spend your time with. That something whose image you are being formed into is what you fill your mind with. And so when you find yourself wavering in life, wavering without hope, rather than clinging to the promises of the world, cling to the promises of God in his word, seeking God's presence with his people. We need that reminder, don't we? We need the reminder of the reminder. And the third reminder of our responsibility to each other is this. It's that we gather together as a church family to love and serve God's people. And we gather together to love and serve God's people. Let's look at these last two verses here. Verse 24 and 25 read. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Apparently the uh, author of Ecclesiastes was right. There's nothing new under the sun. Apparently this weekly rhythm uh, of worshiping together has been a problem not just for 18 months, but for like 2,000 years. And all the pandemic done, is, uh, it's only accentuated the bad habits that were already there all along. And the thing about bad habits is, you know how easy a bad habit is to start? And you know how hard it is for a bad habit to die off? They die hard, don't they? And some, 2,000 years ago, just a couple of decades after the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and, and the ascension of Christ, people who had lived to see it, some had already developed this habit of neglecting to meet together and worship together. They claimed to be followers of Christ apart from the body of Christ. They were suffering from that same individualistic mindset that I think has infected much of Western Christianity today, thinking that it is my faith, thinking that it is my walk with Christ, making it an individual endeavor that has no impact on anyone else, what I do or when I do it or how I do it. And yet this passage says the exact opposite, doesn't it? It shows that it is our faith, that it is our walk. It shows how we are necessary to each other, how needed we all are. It shows how important that everyone who calls redemption their church home and calls us family, how important we are to each other. And I've mentioned this before, but I want to say it again. Um, I wonder if this is my church home. Here's how you know. You'll know that this is your church home and that we are your church family when this is the place you worship and these are the people you worship with. And the thing is, is when you're not here, when there are other things taking priority over your pursuit of God together with us, like it not only negatively impacts you, it negatively impacts all of us. And like I hate to go all Jerry Maguire on us, but you complete us. You do. We're not complete without you. We need you. Because think about it. Love and serve and encourage, those are not things you do in isolation. Those are not things you do alone. Those are things you do together. So how, how can we love one another as a church family unless we are with one another? Right? We, we, we gather together to strengthen our faith. We gather together to renew our hope, and we gather together to love one another. Did you notice those three, these three points, these three reminders? And you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 
Love is that distinguishing mark of those who faithfully follow the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is a way of love. If we took nothing else out of our time in the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that it would be that, love for others. But who are the others? Well, Jesus said in John 13 that the world would know us, that he would recognize us, that they would recognize us as his followers by our love for one another within the church. Okay, three-fourths of that's not bad. And there's the other fourth. You're like, I'm going to sit here because they're going to sit there. No, he's called us to love everybody in this room, everybody that calls us home. But he didn't stop there. Our love isn't limited to those in the church family. Because Jesus, he says in Matthew 22, as he, as he summarized God's law, he summarized his law in one word. You know what that word was? You've already said it a few minutes ago. Love. And he summarized it in one command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Not two commands, but one. But then when the lawyer in Luke 10, when, when he was looking for a legal loophole, right, to limit his definition of neighbor, of who it was that he was to love, Jesus, he fires back with a story, doesn't he? He comes back with a story of how their most hated enemy loved them. Because while some had heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus, he says in Matthew 5 that we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I think between those three passages in the entirety of Scripture, there's no one left outside of that, is there? It's not like a Venn diagram. It's, it's just one circle with one color, love. Love who? Love everybody. Love doesn't look the same to everybody, but love everyone. There's no limit on love. And when we think about love, love that, that Christ is calling us to, love that Scripture is calling us to, love is not simply an emotion you feel. No, it is a choice that you make and an action that you take. We don't just feel love for one another. We express one love for one another. Right, as James says, faith without works, faith without love for one another is some other kind of dead faith of no value. And he shows us how to love one another. He says that we love one another by serving one another, right, through our good works for one another. But here's the thing, how can we serve one another if we're not with one another? You can't bear one another's burdens unless you come alongside them. You can't meet someone's needs unless you see their needs and you know their needs. But likewise, uh, your needs can't be met unless you allow others in and allow others to see your needs and allow others to meet your needs. There's a level of vulnerability in love, isn't there? There's a level of intimacy of allowing others in and entering into the lives of others. But also he says that we love one another by encouraging one another. And can we just be honest, are we not in need of an overwhelming, overflowing amount of encouragement right now? I bet everybody in here, we could just stop the sermon right now and we could offer encouragement to each other for the next half hour and that would be productive time, wouldn't it? I think we're all lacking encouragement. When I say encouragement, I don't mean compliments. I don't mean that shirt looks nice on you. Thank you, though. I appreciate that. I heard you. But, but encouragement... You know, this thing that you did, that was, that was really encouraging because here's what that meant to me. You know, that, that thing you said the other day, that really changed the way I was thinking about things. Thank you for that. Encouragement is specific, isn't it? 
But I think that's also why we struggle with encouragement. We struggle to give encouragement because it's vulnerable. It's intimate. I have to reveal to you something about me in order to encourage you. And so how many times have you typed out that text of encouragement to someone and not hit send but deleted it because you weren't sure what they would think? I can't count the number of times I've done that. I did it this morning, now that I think about it. I went to encourage my coach about something that he had helped me with last week. And I also wanted to razz him because he's an Alabama fan and they got beat last night and all God's people said amen. And I deleted the text, like, what's up with that? This is a man I spend time with every other week. I've shared as much with him as I have the elders and yet I still felt weird about it. And so like, we struggle with encouragement because we struggle with vulnerability. We struggle with intimacy. We struggle with allowing others into what we are thinking and believing and feeling. And so I want to encourage us to take a step of encouragement if I can. I want to encourage us. Uh, at first I was thinking, you know, every week. And I was like, no, no, let's go all the way. Let's go big or go home. Amen? Mm, not as many amens on that one. I want to encourage us, I want to challenge us to offer specific encouragement to someone every day for the next week. Every day, starting today. I don't care if it's in person, I don't care if it's in text, I don't care if it's over the phone. Does anybody even still talk on the phone anymore? If you do, that works too. You can even be an email. You can... My goodness, is there anything more encouraging than a handwritten letter? I use those as bookmarks. I have a whole drawer of them. So if you have sent me one, I know where it's at. It's in my drawer in my office, my study. Every day this week. Can we do that? Be good with that? I told you we were making commitments today. I didn't plan on this one. This was just kind of off the cuff. Every day this week, starting today through next Saturday, I want us to make a commitment. And so be praying. Be praying for eyes to see. Be praying for uh, ears to hear, to know who is in need of it, everybody, and ways in which you can do that. Coworkers, people in this room, parents, kids, relatives, friends, family, anybody. One piece of encouragement every day this week. And as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we encourage one another, I think something becomes clear, and it's that one another piece, because our loving one another requires our presence with one another, doesn't it? We cannot do these things alone. This is how healthy church families function. And yet, the pandemic has made this an interesting passage, hasn't it? It has made neglecting to meet together a lot easier, hasn't it? While live streaming the service has been beneficial for some, I mean, we had never streamed before the pandemic began, so this is still rather new to us. Um, it's been beneficial for some. We have uh, families in our church family who are homesick right now, this morning, watching online. We have families who just had a baby and weren't quite ready for this baby dedication, so we're going to do it again on Mother's Day. We, God willing, uh, each week have people who have recently moved, and one of the great things about moving to a new location is you can check out a couple of churches online to find out if they're weird before you come. Some of y'all found out we were weird. You still came. Thank you. It's been beneficial for some, but it's also made things a bit more convenient, hasn't it? It's made it more convenient to stay home and to sleep in and stream the service. It's made it more convenient to do something else on Sunday morning and watch the service or listen to the sermon later on your own when it's convenient for you, maybe. And hear me like, I love you. I don't say this to shame you. I say this as this preacher did to stir in you, to encourage 
so that you can see how important that this time is for you and that these people are to you and how important you are to us. And so I want to ask another question. I want to ask, what is it that is distracting your attention and drawing your affection away from God and keeping you from drawing near to God's presence together with us? What is it that's preventing you from worshiping in God's presence, from remembering God's promises and loving and serving and encouraging God's people? I mentioned it before. I want to say it again. Like our kids, um, you know this if you have little kids around. They watch and they hear everything. They won't say any of the words you want them to say, but you say that word that you didn't mean to say, coming out of their mouth and it's coming out in front of other people, isn't it? They're watching, they're listening, they're learning from us, and they're learning about our faith, they're learning about our walk with Jesus, they're learning about how we pursue and how we prioritize God and one another by watching how we do it. And so if it has not been a priority for you, why would it ever be a priority for them? I don't care how many ministries you send your kids to. If worshiping together is not a priority for you, it will not be for them. And that's not just to the parents, that's to all of us. Right? Following Jesus isn't something we do alone. It's something we do together. It's something we do as God's children. We are, we are siblings. We are brothers and sisters united together in Christ, a family that faithfully follows the way of Jesus together. I think this morning we need that reminder of our identity, of who we are, united in Christ. And not just what we do, but our responsibility to each other when we gather together, what it is that we are about to commit to in just a few moments. Because see, this, what we have spent this time talking about this morning, it is the foundation behind our vision for family ministry here at Redemption. A vision that we shared just a couple of weeks ago at our fall kickoff. And if if you missed this, and again, I'm not just talking to the parents. Raise your hand if you're in the room right now. Yeah, I'm talking to you. And if you didn't raise your hand, I'm also talking to you. Uh, we really don't like raising hands, do we? And I try only do it on the fun things, not the call you out things. But uh, that's okay. We need some exercise. But if you missed the fall family kickoff, I, I want to invite you to go back and listen to the recording and look at the slides. They're up on our website. If you go to resources uh, and then under updates, it'll be there. That's the, uh, I think, the most recent one. But family ministry for us, it is our entire church family. Once again, can we, can we really do it this time? Can you raise your hand if you're in the room? I'm talking to you. I'm also talking to those of you that didn't raise your hand. Family ministry is about our entire church family, everyone who calls redemption home, everyone who is a part of our family, including you, loving and caring for and ministering to the families in our church because this is something we do together. And I shared at the kickoff how the pandemic kind of gave us a blank slate, like I really devoted a blank slate on my board to this over the course of this past year. It gave us a fresh start. And over the course of this last year as as elders, and specifically as Pastor Robin and Tim and myself have been talking about what's important to us, what do we want this to accomplish, what is our uh, end result, our desired result with this, six key values, six desired outcomes came. And I want to share them with you real quick as kind of a teaser so that you'll go listen to the recording. And number one is this. It's to incorporate our kids. You saw it this morning, didn't you? Incorporating our kids. You see it every week when Tim dismisses the kids to go down because they've been incorporated in worship with us. Right? Our kids should not be treated as a separate church within the church, and they shouldn't be viewed as separate from the church, as some parachurch ministry. 
No, I want our children to know that they are beloved, valued, active, needed, necessary members of this body of our family so that when they graduate from high school and they go on to that next season of life, whatever that may be, they not only know what it means to be a part of a church, but they want to be a part of a church. Tim shared some statistics that almost six out of 10 kids who grew up in the church walk away from the church. And the number one reason that they gave was abandonment by parents. The parents are dropping them off somewhere and delegating the discipleship of their children. And when it comes down to what we want for family ministry, it's everything but that. We want to do this, and we want to do this together, and so we're going to incorporate the kids. But number two, that means then that parents are primary, right? Parents are primary. No one is going to have a greater impact on your child's faith and their walk with Christ than you as a parent, Right? They are watching you. They are looking up to you. They are learning from you. But that doesn't mean that we as a church don't have a role to play. And so number three is that we come along and partner with parents. Right? We play an important role in equipping and supporting and encouraging and in serving parents. And so what we do should not be done separate from you, but in partnership with you. Amen? And number four, one of the ways that we do this is through continuing the conversation. You'll notice a few weeks ago, Pastor Robin started putting together what we're calling the continuing the conversation card. That really alliterates. And we hand these out each week. And what it is, um, how many of you know what the kids are talking about in Redemption Kids right now? Okay, one of you does. Did you get the card already? Is that why? Yeah, she got the card. Uh, They're talking about 1 Kings 6 through 8. 1 Kings 8, that's uh, Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. And uh, this card, it it gives you the passage. Read the passage together as a family. Say the big idea together. Memorize the verse that ties back to that passage together. And then ask questions. Not questions you got to come up with. Just scan the QR code. Pastor Rob's put questions for the little kids, questions for the big kids. And he didn't just give you questions. He gave you the answers. And then he gave a couple of other videos that you can watch along with your kids. So the, the things that we're talking about on Sunday morning... The, the scripture that we're memorizing, the big ideas that we're learning downstairs, you can carry that home and continue it throughout the week. And the next week, you don't have to throw these away just because you get a new one. You get a pile of them. And every three years, our plan is to continue going through the Bible over and over and over again. Continuing the conversation. Number five is create an environment. We want to create an environment that is safe both physically and spiritually. I trust you. Trust me, the environment is safe physically today because Dan Plants is doing security today. No one's getting in. But we want to save spiritually as well. We want this to be a place where our kids, and especially as they get older, uh, where they can explore their faith and ask those hard questions. Questions like, like who am I? What, how, how do I fit in? What difference do I make? Questions of identity, of belonging, and purpose. We want to create an environment that is formative, where they are growing spiritually, an environment that is comfortable, a place where, where our kids want to be downstairs and where they want to invite their friends to be. But man, also a place that's fun. Amen? It's got to be fun. And I want to invite you, and again, when I say you, by now you know who I mean, right? Everybody in the room. I want to invite you to come have fun with us later this month at Fall Fest. Pastor Rob's going to share a bit more about it during announcements, but uh, come. This is an event for the community. It's not an event just for our kids. It's an event for our church family. So come and dress up in your favorite costume. Host a game booth. Uh, Come and serve in other ways, but most importantly, come and let's have fun together. And then number six 
is celebrate the milestones. And this morning, we're going to celebrate that first milestone that our kids celebrate, and we're going to celebrate that milestone together with child dedications. So at this time, I want to go ahead and call those five families forward, uh, the Amigan, the Duncan, the Flores, the Philip, and the Wright families. I want to invite you to come on up and join me here on stage. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.